This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Christians, perhaps American Christians more than most, frequently say that they want pastors and teachers to be practical. They say that they want to know how to apply the Christian faith to daily life. To that end, Christians spend much time and lots of money in order to find out how to live the Christian life practically. What would you think, however, if I told you that there is a free book that already does everything Christians say they want? And further, that this book is not only widely available, perhaps it's at your fingertips right now or on your phone or your tablet or your computer, but that unlike most of the rest of the books in the bookstore or online, it is divinely inspired and inerrant. It's called Proverbs, and it's in your Bible right after Psalms. In 31 chapters, it explains what wisdom is, what it looks like, why it's beneficial, where to find it, and what happens when we choose its opposite, foolishness. This is Season 6 of Office Hours, and our theme is To Know Wisdom. Brian Estelle is Professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, and he teaches a course on the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, including the book of Proverbs, and he's here to help us understand how Proverbs can help us get a heart of wisdom. He's author of Salvation Through Judgment and Mercy, The Gospel According to Jonah, and co-editor of and contributor to The Law is Not of Faith. These and other titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. This is part two of our discussion with Dr. Brian Estelle about Proverbs and Wisdom. Brian, last time we ended our discussion by talking about the book of Job, and before we dive into Proverbs in more detail in this episode, give us your working definition of wisdom. I was afraid you were going to ask that. (laughs) I'm not sure that I have a tight, mature, working definition of wisdom. I think, first of all, the wisdom literature we already identified. And then there's these certain characteristics that we are also talked about that are part and parcel of wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, but then also how do scholars identify wisdom psalms as a genre of psalms? Well, by those characteristics we talked about before, fear of the Lord, the same phrase shows up elsewhere. Uh, For example, in the Psalms, this distinction and contrast between the righteous and the wicked, the my son sayings. And then that cluster of vocabulary words, about 10 words, when we began to see those, and even now as I talk about it, I'm thinking, well, you get these wisdom elements that come up in the prophets even, where you see a high density of these wisdom vocabulary words, and then you realize that you can't make these sharp boundaries. Now, often when you look at the introductory secondary literature, you'll see such things as, you know, discussion about the order in the universe and creation and then extrapolations uh, from that, wise extrapolations go to the ant because the ants are industrious, that kind of thing. So, that's probably about as far as I'm willing to push. I don't want to make the uh, two fallacy, you know, the French word, the all fallacy, and then you lose nuance by making a big generalization, and I fear some of that could happen with regards to the definition of wisdom. 
In your daily life, you wrestle with, as we all do, how to live wisely. And you've raised children, and you have had to try to instruct them in what wisdom means and what foolishness is. What kinds of things did you say to your kids to try to help them to distinguish between wisdom or acting wisely in a particular situation and acting foolishly? That's a great question. I'm not letting you off the hook. (laughs) I'm going to pursue you on this because I think I understand exactly what you're saying. Well, I'd be the first to claim that my wife and I have not always acted wisely in the raising of our children, although we have striven to uh, do so. And I can remember in family devotions, you know, working our way through the Proverbs and pausing and talking about them and that kind of thing. Uh, But of course, youth is marked by a lack of wisdom, isn't it? Uh, So often there's an inability on the part of young people to see the potential trajectories of the action and course that they're about ready to take. And so we as parents have this responsibility to warn them, to advise them, to help them wrestle through decisions when there might be clearly evident negative or destructive trajectories, or also to help them choose in those gray areas between two wise choices, but maybe one is better than another. That idea of consequences is really important, isn't it? And it's important in Proverbs. It's one of the things to which the writer appeals in order to persuade the reader to adopt wisdom rather than foolishness. And and as you were speaking, I was visualizing a two-year-old or a three-year-old child chasing a ball Right, It's rolling out of the yard, it's rolling down the hill, it's rolling into the street, and the child is fixed and wants to get the ball back. And of course, isn't thinking of the consequences of running out into the street, you know, and here comes a vehicle, and that's why mom and or dad, older sibling or somebody's out there watching just in case for that very thing, right? To grab the kid at the last second to keep them from experiencing the consequences of which they were blissfully unaware. Sure, let's make this very relevant to our culture as you were prodding me to do in the last session. So, uh, think about social media. You ought not to treat Facebook like a personal diary. (laughs) There's a lot of wisdom in that. Well, of course, and sometimes a youngster may say, well, what does it matter if I put this up and that kind of thing? Well, it could influence your ability to, to get a job later when somebody looks at that particular page or does a little research because you become a serious candidate. Admissions departments at universities are now looking at your Facebook page. Sometimes employers want to see what's on your Facebook page. Whether that's right or wrong is another question, but it is a consequence, right, of saying everything, photographing everything, videoing everything. Sure, sure. Athletic coaches. So, uh, coaches of D1 schools actually go so far, I don't know how ethical this is, but to interview girlfriends before they uh, sign people on to a scholarship because they're trying to have an appraisal of a person's character. Perhaps it would be helpful to turn to the prologue to Proverbs. You realize in ancient books, there is no table of contents. And so often in the ancient world, uh, the beginning of a book serves as a table of contents. And the prologue to Proverbs is that. And this is relevant to the parenting question, to, um, you know, uh, all of us, as I alluded to earlier. But let me just read that real quick, if I may, and then it'll be fresh before uh, the reader. This is, I think, the NIV version. says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, 
for understanding words of insight, verse 2. Then verse 3, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair. Verse 4, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. And then verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Now, let me make a few comments about that, if I may, Scott, and then you respond with questions or help me clarify for the listener anything that I've left undone. We spend a long time on this in courses here at Westminster Seminary, so I can only uh, touch on a few things, but this is a unique sentence. It's all one long sentence in the original language. There's nothing like it except in one document uh, that we found at Qumran. And um, you'll see the structure of this is it has a title, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And then verse 2 through 6 has a series of purpose clauses, if you will, the goal of which is this. Now, 2a, in other words, the first half of verse 2 for attaining wisdom and discipline. This is all about moral virtue. And my understanding of this presently is 2A is unpacked in verses 3 and 4. In other words, you have more explanation of how one is to attain wisdom and discipline for acquiring a discipline and prudent life, doing what is right, just and fair, etc. So, there's that moral virtue side, that ethical choice side, if you will, character side, But then as a broader part of our character is also mental perception. And so, verse 2b, for understanding words of insight. So, here it has to do with cognitive skills, insight. And that's unpacked in verses 5 and 6. And the vocabulary that I was alluding to earlier and more that we didn't discuss matches this kind of arrangement. So, to repeat for the sake of the listener, 2A is about the goal of obtaining moral virtue, and then that's unpacked in verses 3 and 4. And 2B is for the purpose of gaining mental insight into things and into the trajectory of things. So, that one can anticipate what might come down the road based upon certain actions. That's unpacked in 5 and 6. And then verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And there's the motto for the whole book, uh, namely the uh, key goal of obtaining the fear of the Lord being the beginning of the wisdom. And so, this is how one is to act out their wisdom under the rubric of the fear of the Lord. And then by way of contrast, but fools. And if I remember correctly, the specific word here for fools is avil or evelim, which is a person who knows what they're supposed to do. In other words, has the knowledge to do it, but evacuates their mind of such knowledge and makes a foolish choice. So, there the uh, fool is one that despite the fact that he or she knows what the right thing to do is, nevertheless makes a choice not to follow in that way. So, that prologue is meant to frame the entire book of Proverbs. And uh, we don't have time to go into more detail on that, but uh, it gets back to the issue of parenting skills, of wise living as a man or woman. I mean, it's not just the callow youth that's in view here, although that's definitely in view. It's also comprehensive for everybody in the covenant community about how to conduct themselves in faith and faithfulness to our Lord uh, in this world. 
Wisdom and foolishness are concrete things. They're not really abstract things. The way you were characterizing the prologue there made that clearer for me in a way that I hadn't considered before. It's one thing to say in the abstract, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is evident in certain particular things, one of which is being instructed. And a fool disregards instruction or refuses to be instructed. So in other words, in Proverbs, is it the case that you can talk about wisdom apart from certain virtues? And the antithesis then would be foolishness shows up in certain vices. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So a good way to look at Proverbs, because often you can't read Proverbs with this mere linear development. Anybody who's done that knows that's the case, that you'll get a saying about anger or Uh, abuse of substance, particularly alcohol, or you will have abuse of the tongue. And then Proverbs will jump from subject to subject. There are sections where multiple verses side by side contiguously deal with the same topic, but that's not always the case. And that's why biblical commentators have taken a topic and then search out the sentence wisdom from chapter 10 through 31 to find everything that Proverbs may have to say about that particular subject. And yes, uh, you can look on the world and creation, inanimate creation and creatures and pick up moral insight, if you will, about behavior. But then also by way of contrast, you can extrapolate based upon things you see in the world and notice what's foolish. You mentioned something earlier about abstraction versus concreteness. Let me briefly mention, we don't have time to go into this too much, but I think that's the role of personification of Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. So, when you begin to look at the literary trope of personification, why is this used by authors? And actually, a student of Roland Murphy's, Claudia Camp, wrote a very fine monograph on this subject, which has become a standard in the field, of the function of personification in the book of Proverbs, and she's most interested in addressing Lady Wisdom. And... There's many things we could say about this, but the role of personification helps human beings to universalize and to understand abstracts when you have a whole bunch of particulars. Let me give you an example. All of us who have children see the psychological development of our children. So, when you ask them to pray when they're quite young around the table, they begin to look at different discrete items around the table. And thank you for the rice and for the chicken and thank you for Puff the dog and Max the cat and da-da-da-da-da-da. But they've not learned to group those particulars and concretes under something coherent and universal. Lady Folly does that. Is this supposed to warn the young man about a real prostitute or a real promiscuous woman? Absolutely. But there's a whole bunch of other things that could fall under the rubric or the category of Lady Folly. If that's all you take away from that, you've missed a big part of the point, right? That's right. This is not going the way of the Lord. This is going the way of the world. And there's real destruction. Death, Shaol, even, at the other end. So, this is a warning about being faithful to the covenant or not being faithful to the covenant. And by contrast, Lady Wisdom also groups in under the unity of her subject, the multiplicity of experiences and concrete experiences such that follow Lady Wisdom. And this is what will be uh, true for you. Uh, she calls out and says, if you want to be blessed, 
then you will be blessed if you follow my way. So, it's not just, you know, one discrete action, but it's all that brought underneath the personification of Lady Wisdom because as human beings, that's what we need. And actually, this literary device, this very powerful literary device, drives our mind to the abstract and to the universal. Now, not to be too abstract and back to the concrete, now you have real concretes that come out in the individual sentences and maxims through the rest of the book. And do you want to take some examples of those? Before we do that, give us an overview of the whole book. So, we know we have a prologue in the very beginning, and then we have this section from chapters 1 through 9, and then uh, how is the rest of the book structured, and how should the listener, when he sits down to read this, make sense of the whole thing? Well, first of all, understand the prologue. That's like a table of contents. That cues you into what… What to expect for the rest of the book. What to expect. But then you you have these kind of, as you say, groups of things, but then sometimes isolated maxims, isolated sayings. And as one sits down and sort of reads through them, it might be hard to join them together or to see how they relate. Absolutely. So, the first nine chapters have this call from Lady Wisdom to choose her as opposed to Lady Folly. And in my view, that's what's picked up again at the end of the book in chapter 31. Now, we often think of that as the quintessential wise housewife, if you will, but I think that's somewhat an overly facile reading. Uh, Probably a better way to read that is this is the appearance of Lady Wisdom again, showing the appropriateness and the desire, the lure correctly and appropriately of uh, following in her way. In between there, all kinds of maxims. And it's almost beyond description. I can remember Bruce Walkie saying years ago, 10, 15 years ago, in a section on Proverbs, and of course, he's written quite a bit on the wisdom literature, that uh, Bruce would close his eyes and look with this affectionate look on his face. It's like going into a hall of mirrors. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you have teaching here and teaching here on various subjects. And, um, You know, these, again, are meant to inculcate uh, wise behavior, wise thinking and perception. And when you begin to see the beautiful way that that's orchestrated, so probably a good way to handle it is, um, I think a very helpful way to handle it is to take topics and see everything that comes together under one topic, like anger, and to see the many proverbs that are uh, brought together, each with their own little nuance about certain facets of how to be self-controlled and not give in to anger, or how to avoid a situation where one might be angry. So, for example, I think I got this out of Proverbs, it's not specifically says this, but when I felt myself, I have not always practiced this by any means perfectly, but when I felt myself lured into being very frustrated with children, every parent knows this frustration, that maybe it was good for me just to exit, stage right, take a walk, and uh, cool off before I decided how to hopefully, in a more wise way, handle the particular thing that uh, a child was putting before me. Just as one example. 
critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. Let's look at the end of chapter 9, which has this wonderfully sort of gripping, uh, very concrete language, and then maybe look at a little bit at, at 10 as a way of seeing how to read Proverbs and how to make use of them. I'm often struck by this section particularly because it just seems to capture the spirit of our age. As you and I are sitting here talking, it's just after the Super Bowl, and one of the topics of conversation before and after the Super Bowl is which were the best commercials. Every sports talk show, every generic talk show is discussing who had the best commercials and what made them good. And it's interesting that we actually talk about advertising and evaluate it and critique it. It just seems like uh, there might be some other things we could be discussing. I don't know. I'm reading from the ESV. Proverbs 9.13 says, The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. And now a quote, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. By the way, she's pretty much telling you the kinds of people who are going to make the wrong decision. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there. And you mentioned this earlier, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. If you ever wanted to see a concrete account of the difference between wisdom and foolishness and the outcomes of wisdom and foolishness, they're right here. And it seems to me this section sort of captures the spirit of our age. Yeah, I'm looking at the NIV here, not the ESV. I wish I had brought a Hebrew Bible. We could look at it more closely. But if I could say back up just a little bit, because I notice in verse 10, it says of chapter 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let me insert quickly. We saw that in the prologue, verse 7. This is roughly the middle of the book. And guess where else this fear of the Lord comes up in a prominent place? At the end of the book. So, the people who collected these Proverbs and finally put them together are signaling to you, the reader, this is very important. In contrast to that, notice Lady Folly. Now, I would be very interested to look closer at this first because it says, the woman Folly is loud, she is undisciplined without knowledge. When you look at Lady Folly through the whole development of these opening chapters of Proverbs vis-a-vis Lady Wisdom, one thing that comes out quite clearly is Lady Folly is usually not characterized as loud. Lady Folly is surreptitious secretive, cunning in the worst sense. 
Cunning in the wisdom literature can be either good or evil. Most often, it's used for evil purposes, but it can also be used for good purposes. But notice, even though it says she is loud, she is undisciplined without knowledge, she sits at the door of her house on the seat of the highest place of the city. So, here she is trying to lure through surreptitious means and through seductive means. And I think a legitimate comparison over and against uh, Lady Wisdom is, Lady Wisdom is out in the open. If you look at uh, chapter 8 at the beginning, she has nothing to hide, nothing secret, so to speak, okay? Whereas Lady Folly is here at the door of her house, okay? And much more closed, if you will. So, that's one thing to know. And um, doesn't that even have something suggested to say about the nature of sin? And to be perfectly clear and forthright about this, how many, for example, a major problem in our generation is the internet and promiscuity on the internet? And does it stand to reason if a young man is caught up in the habit of watching pornography on his computer that that young person may have more proclivities to commit more egregious and public sense of promiscuity or adultery? Absolutely. And so, Proverbs would enjoin the young man in our day and age to say, that's a context that's dangerous. Yeah. Don't even go there. Don't even tempt yourself. Don't even put yourself in a context uh, uh, to be Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. There it is. That just as well could be the advertising slogan for the single biggest commercial enterprise right. on the internet. And uh, Scott graciously pulled up his Hebrew texture on his iPhone. I'm this side of the digital divide, so I don't have one of these <laughs> things yet. I'm still a dead wood guy. You know, we deal with the paper. But very interesting, uh, verse 15, to whoever who would call along literally passers on the way. Here's this word, derech, and uh, having to do with the way and the choice. And I have no doubt the writer of this section is picking up on that to resonate with the hearer that, hey, here's a choice between the ways. And then whoever is pati, that is, whoever is a uh, pataim, this is the word that came up in the prologue for the simple, the callow young, the unmature. They still need to be developed. They still need to develop this uh, maturity and this kind of expertise and this intuitive, if you will, response to sin. Not that they are never faced with concrete ethical choices, but this internalized obedience, if you will, and proclivity to do right as opposed to wrong. All right, so let's look at a particular place in Proverbs. We've meditated on chapter 9 a little bit, 8 and 9, but let's look at chapter 26 as an example of how to make the best use of Proverbs and how to read the Proverbs successfully. Okay, so if we look at some of these verses flowing out of 26, that might be a good way to see something really concrete on a reading strategy for Proverbs. Notice uh, verse 1, like snow in summer or rain in harvest, honor is not fitting for the fool. So, notice the incongruence there. Okay, you don't get snow in summer or rain in the harvest typically. So, too, honor is not fitting for the fool. And then verse 2 is a little more difficult, like the fluttering sparrow or darting swallow, an undeserved curse does not come to rest. Okay, so what's the point here? Probably that flight is aimless to the uninformed observer. This 
probably has to do with the traditional view of retribution, that the wicked get their comeuppance and the righteous get theirs. But here, probably the notion, and this is the genius of Proverbs, you roll these things around in the mind, and then the reader should, as they meditate on Proverbs, especially contrasting Proverbs, come to a kind of insight. Not that meaning is created merely in the human mind apart from the prompt of Scripture, but notice that the genius of Proverbs, especially these antithetical ones, is the author sets it before you, you meditate upon it, and then your mind brings resolution to the words that have been set before you. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Excuse me, let me interrupt for a moment and ask, is it the case that when one is reading Proverbs, one might not simply roll through a chapter and say, well, I read a chapter of Scripture today. One might have to read a very few verses and then stop and then take time and maybe the rest of the day and meditate on those words they read. Absolutely. To be somewhat personal, uh, I took for a large block of time working through the Puritan Bridges commentary on Proverbs. One proverb, page, two pages of commentary and reflection, typical of the Puritans. But my goal in my devotions was to meditate on that and use Bridges and his explication of a, a proverb and let that just roll around in one's mind for uh, quite a while. And so, I think that you're absolutely right. That is effective. 26.3, a whip for the horse, a halter for the donkey, and a rod for the back of Fools, that's pretty straightforward. A rod is appropriate for a fool, and uh, maybe by implication, don't act like an animal. So, this assumes a sort of agrarian setting. It assumes that we all know what is meant by a whip for the horse. This is not necessarily about beating the animal. This is an animal cruelty. Uh, this is a spur, right, to get the animal to do what you need it to do. So, the whip goes on one end of the animal, and the bridle is at the other end, the front end of the animal, and those are fitting because they're appropriate to the animal that you're handling. And in the same way, a rod is appropriate for the back of a fool. That's right. And especially in light of what we saw earlier, an undeserved curse does not come to rest. Okay? So, in other words, the effectiveness depends upon uh, behavior and uh, consequences again. Act like a fool and there will be consequences. That's the way the world works most often. And it's interesting, too, to note in passing the assumption of Scripture and Proverbs of the legitimacy, if I can raise a controversial topic, of corporal punishment. Scripture is not shocked at the notion that somebody would receive corporal punishment. And in our culture, our context, that's becoming increasingly controversial. As a pastor, as a dad, as a teacher, do you have any opinions, not necessarily about corporal punishment, but how do we navigate the cultural differences or the cultural gap between the assumptions of the biblical world and the assumptions that seem to be prevailing in our time, our culture and setting, especially when they're so sharply contrasting? I'm not trying to be cute here, but if you do believe that corporal punishment is appropriate to apply to one's children, I mean, we do live in a different age. I can remember when I was in public high school, if the coach caught you goofing out, uh, you had to go into uh, the shower, strip down, take a shower, go to his office wet, bend over, grab your ankles, and he had a paddle with holes drilled in it. You must have had the same coach as I did. Our uh, vice principal in seventh grade had that same paddle. They must have circulated that thing. I don't know, but uh, you'd never see that at a public high school today, of course. 
So, probably the best thing I can say on this, being prudent, which Proverbs wants me to do, is uh, if you do believe in such a principle, then you best ought not to practice it in public. Okay. (laughs) Believers do face a growing, perhaps, chasm between the world in which we live now and the prevailing assumptions, which are less and less informed by Scripture and the world and assumptions that we meet in Scripture. So, that's a challenge for the believer. And of course, just to qualify, all of us who believe in discipline in Christian circles, because we want to be sensitive to the gallery here, believe that it should be measured and given in love. And uh, of course, we have the verse in scripture that is an appeal to the rightness of God's discipline, and it makes an appeal based upon fatherly discipline in the world and says, though not pleasant, nevertheless, is a demonstrable way that fathers and God show us that he loves us. And so, it's with that that uh, when we do apply discipline, whether whether that's a timeout sitting on a bench or whether at the appropriate age uh, it's a paddle, it's always given with restoration and love and that kind of view. In the context of grace and forgiveness. and Absolutely. One of the verses that we've discussed most often in season six of Office Hours, the theme of which is to know wisdom, and we're talking with Brian Estelle about Proverbs and wisdom, has been this verse, 26.4, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And maybe this is a good place to draw this discussion to a close. Prof, what do we do with this? I think the Talmud got this wrong. The Talmud being the discussion of the rabbis and wrestling with naughty presentations and scripture and trying to bring that to a resolution. They talked about verse 4 dealing with worldly things and verse 5 dealing with religious matters. I think that's too facile resolution. Rather, what this shows us is that the category of wisdom is contextually dependent. Now, that doesn't marginalize us to a posture of relativism whatsoever, but what it does is it highlights that wisdom is not quite tantamount or equal with law. Rather, circumstances affect the wisdom situation, as my professor taught me. And so, in one circumstance, you may want to answer a fool. It may be desirous to do so. It may even be incumbent upon you to do so. In another circumstance, silence and not speaking up to a fool uh, may be the wise course of action. And of course, that illustrates that life is messy and life is gray and not always black and white. And therefore, the circumstances in life demand not black and white responses as if there was some kind of manual, (laughs) how to behave wise in every situation, but rather God wants us to use our sanctified reason. And uh, those of us who are Christians are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and we have the guidance and principles, not only of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in the book of Job, but the entire canon of Scripture to give us everything we need for conducting ourselves in a covenantal faith and a faithfulness. And then, where Scripture doesn't speak, we try and move forward wisely according to the principles of God's Word insofar as they speak to the issue at hand. And uh, where they don't, we still try and act wisely and use our God-given brains to make wise decisions and be humble with regards to our opinions because uh, we may not uh, have the market on any given question where Scripture does not speak clearly to it. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California.
All rights reserved.